Perfect. Okay, so we're recording. Jeffrey, thanks so much for making time for me today. I wanted to take advantage of your offer to just sort of be an advisor and consult on some of these issues. And so one of the issues, I'll just dive right in if you don't mind. One of the issues that we're having is that we've got people who are racist, anti-Semitic, and they're being appointed to different sorts of humanitarian types of councils. We had one with Hatem Batazian, I believe that's his name, in San Francisco. We've got one recently no. in, the most recent one comes out of Champaign, Illinois, and it's an Emma Taha, who is a radical activist who republished a text calling for the killing of Jews, and he's been appointed to an anti-racism task force. And so, you know, the thing, it, what it comes down to is people aren't really doing their homework on who these people are, and it also comes down to a little bit of privilege in the sense that it's not just the anti-Semitism. It's people like Hatem or Ahmed, they are so hateful towards other Muslims as well. So anyone who doesn't line up with a certain sort of narrative is usually on the receiving end of this hate. But those folks that are usually doing the appointing aren't, aren't seeing this and aren't aware of it. So I wanted to have a conversation about this, and I wanted it to be about more than just privilege because you know you have such a long history of, of uh, a track record in this area and I want to get your thoughts on what you you know what you think is the right way to approach this in a way that gets these folks these these uh, commissions and these these mayors these elected officials to do the appointing to get why this is a problem in a way that you know whatever we're doing right now to draw attention to it is not working yeah, it's definitely a complicated issue. And I think one of the bigger problems is that if you look at it from a foundational perspective, um, you have government organizations who are with people who, who make decisions that view their, their mission from a very specific task area. Um, and they don't uh, they don't view their mission from the larger perspective of I'm I'm uh, responsible for being a guardian for democracy or or law or human rights and and that that issue is is a challenge because if they don't look at it from that point of view they think uh, I've got only this narrow task and that's only what I have to do. You miss a big picture. We had a discussion previously about law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I, I made a point about how a lot of people, when they come into law enforcement, they do an oath of office, like I did when I, I, I joined law enforcement. And they swear uh, to uphold the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign, etc. Uh, and domestic, etc. Uh, and you know, one of the things that we could go back to, failing a consistency on understanding human rights, failing a consistency on understanding a uh, commitment to democracy, if we have individuals who had to take an oath of office, we could go back to that. And I'm 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 brainstorming here in terms of solutions because I realize how the magnitude of the issue. Because it's not simply just anti-Semitism. It could be you know um, racism. It could be um, of every kind. It can be uh, anti-Muslim hate. 
It could be, um, you name it, fill in the blank. It could be misogyny, misandry, you know, anti-blue eyes, anti-brown eyes. I mean, it all comes back to a fundamental core issue. If you support democracy, you have to support, if you, you support meaningful, effective democracy, you have to have a, a support basis in pluralism and respect for your fellow human beings as part of your mission. It's not simply enough to say, okay, I have to fulfill, you know, position X, Y, Z with a person who files papers. If you lose track of the mission, it's like if you're in law enforcement, you lose track of the idea that you're there to support the law and you just decide, well, I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, then you lose track of why you're there. And that, I think, is the foundational issue that we want to come back to with people who are in elected authority or who represent organizations that claim to have higher values beyond simply a specific task. So is the solution then, taking that, taking that in mind, do we apply that solution towards larger, broader campaigns and, and trying to get this message across? Or do we reach out to the folks and the communities doing the appointing? Like, what is... Because... And I ask that because simply, for example, writing a letter or doing a video isn't necessarily targeting that community. And so, and then at the same time, a lot of the times when we do reach out, unless we've got really big numbers doing the re- reaching out, just reaching out alone isn't effective enough. So how do we really get this to the, to the, the, the decision maker in a way that gets them to understand the severity of their choices? I'm glad you asked that question. Because the truth is, and I'd like to give you the simple answer, um, because I know that's what we're all looking for, but the truth is we have to do both. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what the idea, successful or unsuccessful, behind Responsible for Equality and Liberty was to try to broaden the national state, community, global dialogue on universal human rights and dignity, period. Bring it up and say that this issue does not just apply on December 10th or just does not apply when Amnesty International has a a campaign or just does not apply um, when a selected group has it, but this applies to all caps, if you can see my my me writing it <laughs> all of us mm-hmm. and that is really the message now if you look at it from a um activist or a um um ngo or you know volunteer perspective people will tell you you cannot do this not only will they tell you you cannot do this, they will say you must not do this because when you take on issues so broad that what will happen is you will not get sufficient following because people need to have issues that are concrete that they feel that they have accomplished something. 
And if they only talk about issues that are broad based, they won't have that sense of accomplishment to want to continue to be with the organization. So yes, that is absolutely 100% true. Um, um, I was at a technical meeting recently and a guy made a quote from some German philosopher and the quote was, if you're defending everything, you're not defending anything. Mm -hmm. and, and that is absolutely correct in terms of looking at it from gaining volunteer members and numbers. But you have two issues. One is you must continue to broaden the campaign. Now, it would be great if the United Nations Human Rights Council would do this, or a lot of other organizations that are international would do this, but unfortunately, everyone has fallen into their silos. Mm -hmm. So we need more than the silos. But in addition to the broad campaign, which is the real focus of real, um, you need to have targeted things. And you want to try to find activities where you can be successful and you can make change. You will fail most of the time. That's not a problem, that's life. Um, we're not always going to change minds and hearts in, in great numbers on a routine basis. We will do it on an exception basis. And, you know, rather than take, take a, a lack of success in giving campaigns to heart as a failure, no. It just says we need to keep going because we will find that success. But I, I, my belief is we are more successful when we can find something that is narrow enough that people can understand the obvious injustice of it. So every argument is not going to be one. The narrower and the more concrete the injustice is, the, the easier it is for people to decide. For example, the Women's March Inc. The issue with the, the person they recently put on, that we had concrete examples mm -hmm. of very specific things the individual said. They're not narrow, they're not broad. And you, you it was clear that after the years of being pummeled on this issue, it wasn't in, in the interest of the Women's Right Inc. leadership to continue to drag their feet downward. So in addition to having concrete, narrow examples, you also have to find issues where they believe, the people you're trying to persuade, they believe that it's in their interest to make change. That's much more difficult to do. I mean, um, you know, those are those are not as frequent. Um, when you, for example, um, I will just try to reflect on one example from the past. So there was the time we had in the United States where lunch counters in some parts of the United States were segregated by race. As obscene as that idea is, I actually remember having read about this. And of course, I've seen racial segregation as well, but uh, not specifically a counter. But the lunch counter problem 
you have a very specific problem. You have an obvious unfairness where a person of one race cannot sit beside the race of another. And the more you can find examples of obvious graphic unfairness, and it's concrete, mm -hmm. and you can communicate that sort of message, and, and they know there will be consequences to such unfairness. See, now you have, and I'm not into the cancel culture, but here is here's a real issue. If you're running a, um, uh, uh, a lunch counter and you choose to not have people give you money because you choose to be unfair to them ba based on who they are, you know as a business person you're going to have consequences for that. So we need to find narrow issues where the people we're trying to persuade can be convinced there are consequences to having such um, blindness on issues of human rights and respect for our fellow human beings. We won't find them all the time, but we will find them sometimes. And, um, you know, um, it's tough because we'd like to believe every one of those examples that we find will be an obvious story because, of course, we are 100% convinced. Mm -hmm. But we need to find the combination of things that we can use. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what we really, really want to go after. So, um, again, some things were not going to work. I mean, uh, some things, and one of the things we can get, get really mixed up on in my experience um, is when we get politically involved, people of our shared political persuasion may convince us that, well, you know, this case here is such an obvious injustice because so-and-so is involved or so-and-so is involved and after all their different political view and we can get that uh, as part of a leverage. But the truth is, that actually doesn't work most of the time. Um, um, I, I think I think where we can find issues like it, we need to be careful not to get involved in the political aspect mm -hmm. of it if we are arguing from a human rights perspective. I because mean, go ahead. yeah, no, I think that's why the the women's march decision to remove Zara Bilu was so profound because it. You know, they're not politically aligned with the types of folks that typically do challenge Billu's narrative. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go on. No, no. I, I mean, so, I mean, if if uh, I come af after a message and my message is clear that, you know, and I, I'm doing this on behalf of the the party X, whether it's the Whig party or the, the independent party or the uh, whatever party, uh, you know what I'm getting at. Right. Um, uh, uh, what happens is right away, people say, well, I'm not part of that. So, oh, you're just doing that for that person to get elected. And it's very, you get a lot more people to support you with voice and with um, um, passion if you align yourself to a politically based um, campaign. But in the long run, in the long run, and you have to look at the long run for this sort of thing because it's a complex issue. 
um, the the non-political persuasion will be more credible to a broader segment of the public. Absolutely. Let me ask you a clarifying question. You mentioned early on that these issues, in order to win, you've got to be very, very focused. And thank you for that. That really drives us home in terms of how to do this. So we have to be focused. But then you added later on that we've also got to broaden the the initiative or the campaign. So how do you, what does that look like? What does it look like? So say, for example, we defeated or we won against Jelani Hussein, the the Minnesota CARE executive in being collaborative with the FBI and the police department locally in being part of a dismantling human rights panel. And then we won against Zara Bilu. And so now if we're going to add Emmettaha to the list and we're going to be focused on this, this city of Champaign in Illinois, where he's now part of the uh, anti-racism task force, how does a focused issue like that broaden? Like, how do we broaden that campaign then? Yeah, so, I mean, this is this is the the argument that um, real makes. And whether it's right or wrong, I'll just tell you what the idea is. So, basically, it's very clear to have credibility, to challenge Islamist um, um, figures, if... If I'm also going to, if I'm only going to challenge Islamist figures, and I don't challenge racist figures, and I don't challenge anti-Semitic figures, and I don't challenge anti-gender uh, fill-in-the-blank figures, etc., then I, I, I pigeonhole myself. Now, of course, that makes it a very difficult problem because people tend to want to um, get involved specifically only um, based on one extremist problem. But in the long run, in the long run, you, you can't, can't remain credible indefinitely with that. Um, it's it's, uh, it's a, something I had a lot of experience when I started uh, working with Real. Um, it was like about, I guess, 10, over 10 years ago. We had a lot of people that were very ready to talk about human rights, um, uh, UDHR, um, why the Cairo Declaration didn't make sense, etc. Only when it came to Islamism. But Islam, whenever we would address other issues, um, well, there, some people would be lukewarm. So the people that continue to work with me now are not lukewarm about any of those issues, or they're at least willing to address multiple issues. So here's the thing. What, you, what can happen, and this is, this is a trap, is you can uh, create an anti-Islamist extremist movement in terms of human rights, and then you can have those some of those people that will be attracted to it will end up being saying, uh, oh, okay, yeah, and I'm all right with racism too. But by the way, um, yeah, I, I really promote racism and I'm actively involved with racist activity. Uh, wait, hold on, no, excuse me. <laughs> That's not about human rights and equality. This is why the term is very important. Real includes the word equality in its name. And it's not a not happenstance. Equality for me has been um, a driving factor in gating um, 
people who may be anti-Islamist, anti-anti-Semitism, anti-racism, uh, etc., but generally don't believe in equality. They don't believe. They believe that whoever it is, fill in the blank, is superior to others. We don't make progress in the long run by viewing whatever the identity group is is superior to another group. And so the superiority issue is is a root challenge. Um, and so so what I've done is a series of <coughs> narrow focused items. Um, um, some were Islamist groups, some were racist groups, some were anti-Semitic groups, all, they're very narrow specific things. <coughs> I went to um, Ohio to deal with an anti-Semitic um, activist group at a Christian organization. I focused on um, white supremacist groups having specific organizational meetings um, and tried to urge for change. I have challenged specific Nazi individuals that have uh, sought hate and violence. I've, I've gone to address um, individuals who've been violently anti-Muslim. I have tried to address um, issues where people have been very anti-Buddhist. I've tried to address um, misogynist organizations or individuals that have gone after to attack women. This is, this is a difficult campaign. And what you won't see is you won't see um, HRW per se and Amnesty per se pursuing this model. I, I'm going to tell you it's an extremely difficult model. And most of us would like to stay in a lane. We'd like to pick a swim lane and stay there. And that makes logical sense because you build more people, you go forward. But I would discourage people, and you know, if people say how much money have I raised, well, that's not really my goal. Um, but if you pick only one swim lane for human rights and say, well, I'll find these narrow issues to change minds and hearts in this swim lane. It's, it's good, but people will inevitably be drawn because unfortunately, it's sad to say, but hate is a great motivator. What do you mean and by we that? We really need to just, well, it is. I hate a lot of people are, are very willing to challenge um, extremist or anti-whatever uh, groups simply because they hate them. They hate that, that the religion, the race, the political view, whatever it is that that represents. And it's a very um, destructive uh, um, cancer that can filter into an organization. I, I would have meetings with people who I thought were reasonable, uh, rational people. And then when I would sit them down with a cup of coffee and really probe them, 
I would hear words out of the mouth that I would say, oh, really? I mean, and I would try to urge them in for changing it. Some people, it just takes a long time for them to change. But you have to be cautious in some of the campaigns that you don't end up with people who are attracted. Like, for example, the anti-Islamist extremist campaign can draw people in, as I'm sure you're well aware, mm -hmm. who are anti-Muslim, period. And, you know, and I mean, you know, even with the best intentions, uh, my own mistakes, I will admit, clearly and have in print, writing publicly, of trying to ally with people that I thought were anti-Islamist who turned out to be truly anti-Muslim in no doubt whatsoever. They go down that path. And now, where do you go from this? I mean, you know, you can't very well just end an organization. So the focus with, with redirecting towards real was to focus on equality and weed out people who would hate other people because of their race, religion, um, identity group, etc. Um, and so that's that's been the goal with real. And it's it's a difficult slog, I will admit. I think um, if you get a critical mass of such of individuals or some, you would be more successful. I had a real problem during my campaigns with Real. I've had a lot of family members with serious illnesses that I've had to take time off and deal with my mother for many years, my father who lost his legs. And so I was particularly challenged on my own campaigning um, in different times. Um, so perhaps if I was younger and some of those things didn't happen, uh, I might have been more successful in my um, broad uh, topic, narrow um, activism uh, combination. I still think it's a, I still think it can work for the right combination of people. Um, I, I, I will tell you, everyone, every single person who writes about um, you know human rights activism will tell you this is not the way to go. It was very discouraging. Because, you know, um, here I, I've got book after book on organization that said, don't do this. I'm like, oh, crap. Um, you don't know, do what exactly? But, uh, well, they don't believe that you should campaign uh, to challenge broad issues um, where you would address, for example, um, challenging Islamism one week, anti-Semitism mm -hmm. one week in terms of activism. So you only deal with one issue. And I understand that point of view. But um, your point is to be more focused, is, uh -huh. is to cross ac hop across the lanes, but to be more focused in each specific issue. And I like what you're saying right. about an organization like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty. There's always been this sort of expectation that, oh, they're going to handle it. These large organizations are going to handle it. And I think what we've seen after 2016 is, is a realization that you know, we can't just sort of deposit our autonomy and power and trust and responsibility into quote unquote higher figures or higher level authority, but that we have the ability. And I think the two wins that we've gotten this week with Care Minnesota and then Zara Bilu from Care San Francisco 
is that with enough people, with enough movement, enough individual action. And so like you were saying, you were challenged with certain issues when you were campaigning in years past, but here you are and you've, and we've always had this sort of rapport and dialogue and, and I really rely on the sort of guidance that you offer because it is based on experience and it has a very different tempo than a lot of the hyper sort of activism that we see today. So I think your experience is, is even more profound today with how you can really pivot or, or guide how we go forward here. I would like to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever had the time, and you may not, uh, have, to read the autobiography of Martin Luther King? I have it, actually. I did order it, but it's on the list of okay. things to read. I'm almost done with Malcolm X, and then he's next. So um, the reason I ask is directly to related to this discussion we're having. So Dr. King had a number of organizations and campaigns he did, but um, what you would see because Dr. King had an actual job, um, he was a pastor, um, he wasn't a full-time activist, which, you know, uh, he would find a campaign here and a campaign there and a campaign here and a campaign there. But if you, if you look at he had very specific segmented things. He would, for example, the lunch counter example is one of Dr. King's examples. And uh, there are other things like that. You know, he would find something. I learned things from him. Mm. I, I learned things from my own experience, but I also learned from reading, watching what he did as a young boy and reading his stories as to how, because he actually says, this is what, how I thought this out. And it's, it's very interesting because here he's telling you how, how he struggled with things. You know, I, I didn't know what to do here. It's almost it's like you're sitting there and he's talking to you, and um, it's very helpful from that point of view because um, he he admits where he had, I said problems with that. I didn't know what to do, or you know, and, and this is how I came out to solve it. That's a very useful dialogue. I mean, you know, of course you can read it whenever you want to read it. Um, But um, it's, um, you know, the series of of campaigns that you do can be um, can be effective if if you pick and choose. Um, If you continually try to do one after another after another, this Sometimes some of them are not going to work. So it, try to be selective and narrow on your target, um, so that you know there's a reasonable chance that something might change. Um, with care, we have a real problem, um, and it's a deeper problem. I mean, we have, you know, the law enforcement that we were talking to. And I met with FBI people about CARE and I don't know, uh, probably around uh, 2009, 2008, uh, 2010. And the FBI we have nearly 10 years later is a very different organization. How do you figure? You will find people that will have, well, so, you know, 
we went through the, a big struggle in the FBI in the 1970s in trying to deal with the issue of intelligence versus law enforcement. Now, the FBI is an investigatory, investigatory body, so it can do both. The original goal was that um, intelligence, domestic intelligence, is only designed to be done during wartime and stop when you're out of the war. But after the, the Cold War happened, um, Hoover continued it, and uh, it went on until, of course, he died in the early 1970s, and people realized that things had gotten out of control, and of course there were all the efforts by the church committee to try to reform things, which obviously didn't work. But um, for a while it did. From the late 1970s to the 1990s, there was significant reform. Um, I know part of that because part of the time I was actually there. So I'm not just talking secondhand about that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after 9-11, however, you had a completely different situation. And you continue to have some of the law enforcement mantra that was prioritized up to a point. But, you know, um, when Mr. Comey came in, and Mr. Mueller, of course, um, the goal was to reimagine the FBI as more a proactive intelligence-driven organization. Intelligence is very different from law enforcement, as I've written and on my 30-page tome on that, which you can read whenever you want to. But um, that the issue is when you're talking to people about law enforcement, they will understand, well, you know, you can't do something because this is wrong against the law. If you look, talk to an intelligence person, they, they look and see, how can I use this? How can this be helpful? Uh, how can this forward a narrative? That's a very different way of thinking. So when I would meet with people for FBI on care, while they still had some of the law, leftover law enforcement thinking, and when they were crude in the late 19th, 20th century, people saw, well, the Holy Land Foundation and the Diacoma Conspirator, um, you know, there are things that are wrong here. Now, as that has gone by, there's been a lot of debate over what radicalization really means and how radicalization can or cannot be used. And, you know, you've had people that, when you get a more of an intelligence perspective, they start to think, well, if they were radicalized 20 years ago, maybe it doesn't matter as much if we can use them now. And now a law enforcement person wouldn't think like that because they'd say, what are you talking about? Um, mm -hmm. But an intelligence person would. Right. So we have this gentleman who's just got arrested this week um, with uh, Hezbollah, it was announced yesterday. He was indicted, but he was actually, the complaint actually came in July 2019. And he actually, a lot of his surveillance was in, I don't know, like 2003, 2005. And the, the confidential witness they had, they arrested in 2017. Now, if you look at things from an intelligence perspective, you will look the other way about things as long as you can use someone 
for the ends justifies the means. That's different than equality under the law, right is right, wrong is wrong. Totally different thinking. So the care, when we talked to the FBI about care years ago, and they had this right is right, is wrong is wrong thinking, that's one thing. And you're talking to FBI members in today's world, you're gonna run into more people who are nuance oriented um, based on this intelligence thinking. So the approach to dealing with care is got to be more nuanced back. Um, and it's it's a tougher problem than we had, say, you know, 10 years ago. Much tougher problem. I don't think you're going to convince as many people. I, I know this is what any of us want to hear, myself included. Um, I don't think you're going to convince as many people at the FBI that care is as much of a threat today as you would have 10 years ago. And um, if we don't recognize that, that that part of the FBI has changed, we can find ourselves um, 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 shouting to people that aren't going to hear us uh, with a message they don't want to hear. So, the, I mean, this week, oh no, it was last week, September 10th, the book came out 10 days ago by Mike German, major critic of the FBI, complaining about, oh my goodness, why did they pick on CARE? Oh, the Holy Land Foundation trial was so terrible. Oh, they, then they, they ruined CARE's sterling reputation by calling them an unindicted co-conspirator. And this, this is the critic of the FBI's processes today. This is the critic who says, well, you know, they've gone away from law enforcement. But this is what ha happens. You get people who have gotten so far down the intelligence path, it has changed their thinking so fundamentally that you're not gonna hear from them. So I think what you need to do when you're, criticize, when you're challenging care is you have to have very recent specifics. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if, if, if it's specifically with this latest Hezbollah case, I would, I would leverage that if you could or if you know you should get any Hamas case that comes up. Anything that they would say that's specific to a specific recent group or individual that has involved in arrests, that's where I would leverage. But you know, the Holy Land Foundation, uh, as much as I strongly, I mean, and I've written about it myself many times, but you know, I don't think, I think that ship has sailed in terms of challenging care today. And I hate to say that, I'm glad I'm saying this, you can publish this if you want, but I'm saying this to you privately on that part. I, I, I don't, I'm, I hope I'm wrong. I would be, I would be wrong not to share that insight with you. No, I don't think you're wrong. And I, having consulted with a couple of sectors uh, in the 2000s, I, I do see the sort of differentiation between law enforcement and intelligence gathering it's just two different worlds and it probably didn't help in that regard that the two branches converged in regards to care um the the one that we had this week it was based on against Zarabilu, for example was based uh yeah. and the fact that it came from the women's march it was a decision that they made came from the fact that this is essentially it goes back to 
you know, equality, dignity, human rights. And these are now not about legal issues per se, because a lot of times the Holy Land Foundation, for example, the, the trial, bringing that up is right. just, it falls on dead ears. I mean, no one cares. It's been so long ago. It's like, it's right. done, move on. What's the next thing? But the the values in terms of the, like you said specifically, what else has happened, what's recent, the tweets that, for example, Zara Bilu has put out, you know, the, the really horrific sort of, um, rage-based thinking that is public record when you put it on Twitter, that is really shocking. And I think when it comes to someone like Emma Taha from uh, Champaign, Illinois, who's not part of CARE as far as I know, but he is a part of MAS, the Muslim American Society. And that's where you have an opportunity to say, look, you know, this is how we feel about CARE at this point. We're recognizing on a bipartisan level that this is a problem. We're recognizing that these tweets, this language, this rhetoric is problematic. Now let's look at their network. You know, they're, who are they in bed with? They're in bed with Moss. And if you look at uh, Moss, they had a really shocking um, video that came out earlier this year with the Philadelphia branch uh, where children were in, in a school were singing about their desire to kill and torture children. And that's, uh, sorry, kill and torture Jews. And if that's not radicalization and hate, then, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know what is. And so when when we look at, okay, how can we take on the next thing, the very next specific focus campaign, uh, I think our sights should be set on Amitaha and say, look, you know, when we're looking at what is now being recognized as a normative value, and that is, uh, you know, and that is that we're not going to tolerate this sort of hateful rhetoric, let's look to see who else is doing it, who else is marrying it, and, and then if we want to go further, go back and connect the dots between something like Muslim American society and care, uh, because they are in bed together in terms of in, in terms of how they do partner. So I think I think you're on to something there. Um, but I think that's it for me. I think that's it for listeners as well. But I think we can go with this and use your advice to take on the next thing. Okay, sounds good. And um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, your continued efforts with the reform uh, movement and having other fellow Muslims with you is essential. I mean, it's very important that we don't look like we have uh, one Muslim and a bunch of non-Muslims in the campaign because, I mean, that's that's where the change really starts. I mean, you need to have um, you need to have other fellow Muslims in your campaign uh, to to continue to um, deal with the Islamophobic uh, charges. Right. That, uh, get rendered towards towards people. Yeah, we learned a lot from the Minnesota trip, and this is not specifically public knowledge. I just learned about this yesterday following up on the, the town hall that we had. So we had the town hall, and we had about four, no, sorry, five Muslims who were in the audience, and I touched base with the our host who was uh, a Republic, college Republican on the ground there, but excellent, excellent lady. Um, really, really bright, only 20 years old and such a spark. And so she was filling me in on, you know, who those five were and what else could have happened. And so it was our very first town hall. And so a lot, a lot was learned. And one of the things we learned was, uh, you know, for next time around to make time a day or two later to, to a day or two before, a day or two later to really go and build those relationships because I didn't get a chance to speak with those five, but she obviously knew them and she did. And the feedback was just phenomenal. Uh, one guy was from Moss, for example. Um, sorry, MSA, Muslim Student Association, on campus. And the other two ladies were conservative, and the other two men, I don't know who they were, but they were also Muslim as well. 
And the feedback was quite incredible in terms of just saying that, you know, we learned something. This is the conversation we need to be having. Uh, I wanted to ask more questions. This kind of conversation has never happened in this town before. This is exactly what we need. And so that warm welcome is just so inspiring. And then there was another group of another Muslim organization that couldn't make it, a 40-member organization that with the sort of last-minute scheduling, they weren't able to attend. But now that we know, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this the next time? It's 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 a matter of, okay, to spend a day or two beforehand or after and go and build those relationships because it's one thing to build those relationships over a network, social media, phone, video conferencing, but that real time being able to sort of really be in a shared space with someone is just something that cannot be duplicated and, and really needs to happen. So that's going to be a big challenge for us in terms of just um, how to make that happen. But, you know, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And um, I think, yeah, we want, want to try to, um, where we can get more about uh, if you can bring up the UDHR more, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's that, that, that will help other people be able to use that discussion, take it out of the political context and get it to uh, a different context so that we can get it to a broader audience. That's where I think that we need to move that to. Yeah, for um, anyone who doesn't know but, what UDHR yeah, is, uh, Universal Declaration yeah. of Human Rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, where, where, we can, where we can add that in, it gives us a starting point because what you have with that is pluralism. Yeah. Um, and the pluralism argument now keeps us from, um, it gives us a counter to a lot of the um, Islamophobic arguments that you'll, you'll hear literally, right. or if you will, anti-Muslim arguments, um, as, as well as other um, um, extremism. So I think there's, there's a real, real benefit for that. Excellent. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you, Jeffrey. We'll definitely do this again. Uh, Hopefully it'll be over something that isn't a dire gloom and doom scenario and something more positive, but thank you. Sounds great. Thanks a lot for your call. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.